Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 249. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Sure, 249, wow man, come on. Tell you what's coming in today's show. We have Skeet with his covering the sofa and we've got artist Andreas Rocker on there. Then the main fiction is Kim Stanley Robinson with the timpanist of Berlin Philharmonic 1942. I'll pull that for a title. Then we have, rounding off, we have our very own Amy H. Sturgis with Looking Back at Genre History. That is today's show. I hope you will stick around. So, we are coming into August and this year with a very nice again. Thank you so much. We are up for a Hugo Award. Don't forget, if you're going to, you know, Worldcon and you've got that vote, you know, think about the sofa. That would be fantastic. It is. It's getting very exciting there now. It's um, it's nerve wracking as hell. I'm being honest here. It's just, it's just. And I remember last year. Do you know what I was actually sitting at the new. This I took on a new job, a new role in the in the company I work for, and I was there because I was working night shifts. And oh, just it's just your heart hammering away. So all that's to come again. So. That would be fantastic. Anyway, let's kick off with Skeet. Greetings, Starship Sofa listeners, and welcome once again to another installment of Covering the Sofa. I'm your host, Skeet Zienski. This, the month of August 2012, we have the honor of a fantastic artist, Andreas Rocha. His illustration is on this month's cover, entitled Repair Shop. This image shows a lone engineer welding a long robotic limb of an ominous-looking machine, almost as if the man is repairing the machine that repairs the machines. Fabulous deep crimson lining silhouettes the vast chamber about, giving a sense of mechanisms long since used. There's definitely a story in there, so please take a good look for yourself. Born in 1976, Andreas lives in Lisbon, Portugal, as a freelance digital illustrator and designer. He said as a young man, he dabbled in acrylic and watercolors, but became frustrated until he discovered the Intuos computer tablet, which changed everything for him. Now Andreas works in Photoshop with the aid of an Intuos 4 drawing tablet. With a degree in architecture, he has worked with such companies as Lego, Lifeblood Games, Phoenix Age, Cliffhanger Productions, Krypton Photo, and the Sci-Fi Channel. His sense of structure and layout lend themselves nicely to his creative process. He's been featured here previously on the SOPA in episode 168, which was the Alan Steele's Hugo Award-winning story, The Emperor of Mars. It was Alan Steele who gave a nice nod to the SOPA for helping him win the Hugo. I love looking through other illustrations by Andreas, so you can do the same, and you can do that by visiting his homepage at www.andreasrocha.com. That's 
A-N-D-R-E-A-S-R-O-C-H-A.com, or find him on the DeviantArt website. That's all for me, folks. This is Keith Sciansky for Covering the Sofa and signing off. Back to you, Captain T. Where's Skeet getting that music from? That's like jive good Skeet. <laughs> I'd, I'd actually love Andrea's rock as work there. It's fantastic. Get a look at it, please. So we're coming into the main fiction, and it is by Kim Stanley Robinson, the timpanist of the Berlin Philharmonic, 1942. That is a mouthful in itself for a short story. The story came out in Kim Stanley Robinson's The Best of Kim Stanley Robinson from 2010 from Nightshade Books. His new book that everyone's talking about is 2312. The Guardian says of this new 2312, it is a love story set in a time when much of humanity has escaped an overheated earth. It is Kim Stanley Robinson's 17th novel. Kim Stanley Robinson was born in 1952. And is well known for his Mars trilogy. We actually played one of Kim Stanley Robinson's stories a few a while back now, Escape from Kathmandu. He published his first two short stories in Orbit 18 in 1976. Kim Stanley Robinson has just again won oodles of awards and has been nominated 29 times. He won the Hugo Award for Best Novel with Green Mars, came out in 1994, and Blue Mars, 1997. The Nebula for Best Novel with Red Mars, and again the Nebula Award for Best Novella with The Blind Geometer, 1986. The World Fantasy Award for Black Air and the John W. Campbell Award for Best Science Fiction Novel with Pacific Edge. I had that, you know, I had that in hardback, and I give it away. Oh, got it now. Hardback would have been a first edition as well. The Locust Award for The Wild Shore, A Sharp, Sharp Shock, and Green Mars, Blue Mars, The Martians, and The Years of Rice and Salt, 2003. Like I say, it just got so many awards, and we're just delighted. I'm chuffed a bit to get another story by Kim Stanley Robinson. This story is narrated by Diane Severson. And, you know, when I was allowed to give get this story off, Stan, it was, there was only going to be Diane, you know what I mean, who was classically trained singer in all the kind of, that, that kind of era or that, you know, style. It had to be Diane. So the Starship Sova is very proud to present... The Timpanist of the Berlin Philharmonic, 1942, by Kim Stanley Robinson. First movement, Allegro Manon Troppo in Poco Maestoso. The first movement is about death. It begins with a little joke. Well, that's Beethoven for you. The most terrifying music ever. Yet he begins by making it sound like the horn players are warming up their lips and mouthpieces, the strings turning their notes against the oboe, the flashier ones throwing in a fourth below as if to test even the harmonics. And then the whole thing falls over a cliff into something urgent and loud, jagged and dark. The timpanist got to hammer this sudden fall home with the most violent entrance of his life. The stroke of doom the bad news. He hit his D and A drums like the sledgehammer of death, killing everything. A complete Götterdämmerung in 16 notes. The perfect music for the evening, in other words. Because they were all doomed. Furtwängler knew it, of course, none better. He had marched up to the podium as if to the gallows and begun conducting the instant he got there as he always did now, but this time it was different, the grim look on his face unprecedented and frightening. Behind him, out among the packed audience filling the big hall of the Philharmonie, the timpanist could see any number of uniformed men with eye patches, arms in slings, bandaged noses, missing legs. 
In his peripheral vision, he could see the giant swastikas draped to each side of the stage. And there was another one above and behind them. The Nazi officials sat in the front row, Goebbels chewing his underlip like a rabbit. It was best not to look at them. During the short rests between his assaults, and throughout the second theme, as the countertune kept trying to tiptoe out of the room, the tympanist locked his gaze on their conductor. Nevertheless, he saw the bandaged men, also a scattering of soberly dressed women, their faces twisted with pity, dread, longing, regret. When the return of the first theme caught them all, he brought his sticks down harder than ever, pounding out their doom. Not that this music was only about death. The first movement of Beethoven's Ninth was an entire world in itself. One relearned this every time one traversed it. Its seventeen or eighteen minutes expanded into a Greek tragedy that felt like it filled years. There were shifts, respites, restless searches, kindly moments. In certain bars, the woodwinds followed a pause with a little cantabile, a pulse of life, and the strings carried it away in a nervous interrogation, asking, Can this sweetness exist? Can we get away with such delicate play? Can we leave all the rest of the world behind? Only to be answered, No! The little tune smashed down in another flood, the dark plunge, the knell in the heart of the first theme, its falling fourths and fifths like tripping down cliffs at the edge of an abyss. Struggle away as hard as they could, they kept falling back. This was not like the famous first theme in the fifth, which was a different kind of call, a matter of adversity defied, fate heraldic, its eight notes quickly elaborated, woven together, lifted up in a shout that was ultimately heroic. Yes, the fifth's first movement was heroic, while the ninth's was simply death, arriving without any possibility of denial, right there in the great hall of the Philharmonie, April 19, 1942. And everyone there knew it, everyone who was not a fool, anyway, and in such fundamental things there were very few fools. Perhaps Goebbels was a fool, if he was not a calculating opportunist or simply mad. But most of the people in the hall knew very well. They had heard the bombers at night, had descended into the Untergrund when the air raid sirens howled, had stood in the dark listening as the whole world above them became a throbbing band of kettle drums. They saw the maimed boys sitting among them. They read the newspapers, they listened to the radio, They talked in kitchens late at night with friends they trusted. They were Berliners. They knew. Recently, the tympanist had discovered that in the extremity of the violent passages throughout the middle minutes of the first movement, the long rolls Beethoven had given him to play could be made to sound precisely like the bombers at night overhead, and different kinds of bombers at that, depending on how close to the rim he hit and how fast— so that he could imitate the low grumble of Heinkel's struggling for takeoff, or the high staccato of de Havilland's, or the creamy thrum of Lancaster's rushing by on a massed run. These engine rolls were punctuated by explosive hits mid-drumhead, like anti-aircraft fire. It was amazingly like. From within his prophetic solitude, the deaf old man had apparently heard the deadly future reverberating back to him, had translated it into notes, and sforzandos, and triple fortes, and the diagonal crosses through the notes that meant bomber. Now back to the fateful hammering of the first theme. Here he recreated the sound of the big guns of the last war. He had fought in that war and heard each kind of gun innumerable times, sometimes in the very rhythms Beethoven now required, sometimes for hours on end. Fifty kilometers of big Berthas, going off all night long. Useful knowledge in this moment. Happily, he pounded as hard as he could get away with, or harder. Every person in the hall surely recognized what he was doing. Of course, outside the music, they rarely discussed the war. You couldn't. 
The tympanist was as careful as anyone when he was in the building, and never said anything around Rammelt or Kleber in the cellos or Buchholz, Schuldes, Voivod. These five were the really obnoxious party members, just five of them, and yet that was enough to poison the whole ensemble. Once he had seen Voivod tell Hans Bastian, a mild little violinist, You have to say Heil Hitler when you greet someone now. And Bastian had replied, Ah, but it's also nice to simply wish a good morning, isn't it? And Voivod had glared at him until Bastian had scurried away like a mouse. But very few of them were like that. They were like children when it came to politics. They didn't know what to say about it and didn't want to know. Most of them hadn't fought in the first war. Most lived their whole lives inside music, although sometimes a few of them gathered in a rehearsal room and someone would look over someone's shoulder at a newspaper and mutter things. Oh dear, this latest victory in Russia seems to be only half as far along as the one before. It's a Zeno's paradox of a front. Or tough talk under the breath. Ha ha, yeah, sure. A mode common to everyone since the twenties, at least. The latest word was that hundreds of British bombers had destroyed Hamburg, burned it to the ground in a single night. Berlin was sure to follow. No one could doubt it. And yet, no one could say it, not with Nazis in their midst, sanctimonious petty assholes that they were. The Berlin Philharmonic used to belong to its players. They had owned it, each player a share. But Goebbels had forced them to sell, had seized them. They were birds in a cage now, and had to be fearful of traitors. Around the midnight tables, a few of the most disgusted had even discussed the situation and what they would do the moment the war was over. They would immediately dismiss Rammelt, Kleber, Buchholz, Schuldes, and Voivod, and then they would open their first post-war concert with an overture by Mendelssohn. That was the plan. That was what they would do. They told each other drunkenly when it was all over, at which point they could only wince and nod when Erich Hartmann added his usual coda to any such talk, when we're all dead. Now, glancing helplessly through the glare of the lights of the audience, the tympanist could see in the little faces out there that they had all heard a Hartmann, one way or another. The knowledge filled them like an iron bell in the chest. In a year or two, only a few here would be alive. Less than half? A tenth? None at all? None could tell, and yet all knew. Indeed, the music insisted that they know, and the tympanists' mallets drove it into their skulls. That repetitive little dirge in the basses that announced the coda, the phrase that had given Berlioz the shivers, convinced him that the old man had known madness full well. It filled them now, vibrated their guts. They could not escape it. Six notes down, two notes up, over and over and over. Never had they played the first movement like this before. It was their knowledge playing it. The final massive D minor falling fourths, implacable, unavoidable, dragging them down, pushing them off the cliff into the abyss. Hit every note. Singing. Second movement, Scherzo Molto Vivace. The Scherzo is best regarded as a concerto for timpani and orchestra, especially if you are the timpanist. The solo timpani notes called for in the fifth bar are part of the tune, simply an octave apart, D's both, repeating and thereafter anchoring the syncopated dactylic theme, and often banging it solo in the resonant pause of all the others, soloist and orchestra. You had to love Beethoven for thinking of it. The timpanist thumped his great three notes home, and then off they went, rollicking inside a juggernaut that stopped for nothing. Molto vivace, sure, but alive with some kind of thoughtless life, something insectile or germ-like which shrugged off all obstruction, a life manic and unrushing, a life that killed, the mad, blind energy of the universe. 
Fort Wengler conducted this relentless engine in his usual spastic style, urging the group along by mysterious movements. Jerky, uncoordinated, enigmatic, the tympanist, like all the rest of them, had long since learned that the actual beat Fort Wengler wanted could be best read in the movements of his upper arms, or in his shoulders more generally. Nothing else about him was reliable as to tempo. His other shudderings meant God knew what. One could only conclude they referred to some qualities beyond physical expression, which he nevertheless tried to convey, qualities which Fort Wengler himself was at a loss to define, even in rehearsal. He was a little bit crazy. He spoke in bursts, after pauses, and could be amazingly inarticulate when talking about what he wanted in the piece. He would pause at questions, tap the score, cluck in exasperation. Just look at the music, he would say in the end. Just play what's there. And so they would. Ultimately, it became a matter of group telepathy. This was always partly true, but under Fort Wengler's baton, completely the case. There was nothing else for it. They had to make it up themselves. The sudden responsibility of this, the imposed task, was startling, worrisome, sometimes electrifying, and it was in keeping with Fort Wengler's slippery resistance to the Nazis. Just as he would not let them dictate to him, he would not dictate to his players, even though, as conductor, this could be said to be his job. The surprising thing was how often he made it work, how watching him flail up there, seeing him out of tempo and yet believing in him, they so often played as one organism, one mind. It was the best feeling in the world. Naturally, they would have loved him just for that alone. Some of the other conductors were martinets, like Knappas Busch or idiots like Krauss, and, of course, there was always the icy ugliness of the maestro's great enemy, von Karajan. No, a good conductor was always appreciated. A great conductor often loved. But with Furtwängler, it was so much more. The tympanist had felt like that for more than half his life. He had been a bass player as a young man, won his place in the Berlin Philharmonic right beside Erich Hartmann himself, but had gone to the front in the First War and fallen in no man's land during the attack, broken his left arm and leg, and for the following eleven days been caught there under fire from both sides, eating dead men's provisions and trying to hide or crawl back to the German side, which seemed to retreat before him. A night patrol had finally brought him in, but he had never afterward been the same, not in mind nor body, and often could not suppress a small quiver in his left hand. It had looked to be the end of his musical career, but Furtwängler had watched him play, then suggested to him that his tremor would go away if he hit the drums, that it would only make him quicker. It made a way to go forward. That was big. But now, scattered among the orchestra, that was big. But now, scattered among the orchestra, there were many other men who were only there, and perhaps only alive, because of Fort Wengler. Bottomund, Zimmelong, Leuschner, and Bruno Stenzel were half-Jews. Several others, including their concertmaster, Hugo Kohlberg, were married to Jewish women. She's always been that way, Kohlberg would explain plaintively. I regret it, but there it is. What can I do? Nothing. But Furtwängler did something. The full Jews in the orchestra had been driven into exile in the thirties, to the maestro's great distress and over his objections. But after that he insisted he had to have his people, that they and their wives were to be left alone. Naturally, this made Goebbels intent to break him. And the maestro had had to sacrifice his career to hold the line, had quit as the musical director of the Philharmonic and of the Staatsoper, quit all his official positions until now he conducted only as a guest, accepting invitations on an individual basis and never in the conquered countries. And he never gave the Nazi salute, not even when Hitler was there, always marching to the podium, baton in hand, and beginning the moment he got there in a way he never had in the past. Everyone knew it was a defiance. Now he was far away, deep in Beethoven, the greatest German of all, light on his feet. 
It was easy to think of Beethoven as a kind of god, his music as natural as sunlight or the ocean. But he had been a deaf old man, too, scribbling day after day, a hard worker. Fort Wengler somehow made that clear, made the music new again, an improvisation only written down by chance and will. The players saw him struggling to convey this to them, fighting for them in so many ways, talking about it in empty cafes late at night among the trusted friends, the ones who were also in trouble. They had figured there were about a hundred people the maestro was protecting from the Nazis. Not counting the hundred in the orchestra itself, all balanced precariously on his jerky shoulders. So of course they loved him. The tympanist would have died for him, and he was not alone in this. And in performance, they were forced by his indirection to follow him into that mysterious other land and do what they could to bring it back into the hall. The timpani part in the second movement allowed the timpanist many little solos reiterating its syncopated theme, a theme so mechanically regular that its effect was ultimately terrible, as if the wild finale of the seventh had somehow been punched onto the roll of a player piano, blind energy, relentless, remorseless. Again, the kettle drums sounded like artillery, even a brief return of the bombers overhead. Fort Wengler nodded grimly as he heard this. He had been hauled back from Vienna for this one, Hitler's birthday again, a predictable occasion, and so he had been out of town as usual, in Vienna, where the city's Gauleiter would have to give permission for him to leave, and von Schirach hated Hitler, and presumably would refuse any such permission, making it a safe haven. But the word going round was that Goebbels had gotten von Schirach on the telephone and threatened him so effectively that Furt Wengler had been sent back. Now here they were between the swastikas playing for the Führer's birthday with the cameras rolling and the tapes recording so that the performance would be seen by all the world, saved for all eternity. So all the maestro's efforts to keep his distance had come to naught, and now his body was clenched, his baton flew about spasmodically, the abstracted but pained set of his face twisted often into something like rage. Everything about him made it clear to his men that this was a bad occasion, a disaster, a defeat to be suffered. People in times to come would hear the tapes and see the film and judge them. They would not understand. Only if the orchestra played well enough... Might people take pause, feel confused, recall the crimes of their own countries, recall how they had turned their heads and hoped it was just a bad time that would go away, recall how they too had failed to resist. Then they might hear the pain of being caught when the bad time didn't go away, when the thugs took over and there was nothing you could do, or nothing you did. And if they imagined they would do something different, he thought with a sudden forte smash, they lied. They lied. But if they heard, they would understand. So there was nothing for it but to play as if possessed, to live inside Beethoven and throw it in the teeth of their captors, inhabit their music like a fortress, and defy the Nazis from inside it. The whole band understood this, their traitors notwithstanding. These first two movements showed it. They were playing in a fury. Never had they ridden these old war horses as hard as this. Feeling the effort all through his body, striking as if his mallets were clubs, the tympanist hit the final notes of the scherzo so hard that the head of his D-drum split right across. Third movement, Adagio Molto e Cantabile. Normally, when the third movement began, he would sit on his stool with about eight minutes of rest, and there were other rests later. He rested more than played, so he would listen to the sweet flow of the strings and think over his life in a particular order, as if fingering a rosary. First his mother, then his father, then his childhood and youth, lastly his music. This time, however, he had to sit on the floor behind the drums and as quietly as possible pull a new head from the head folder, then unscrew the broken drum head, unhoop it, and get the new one on, all in time for the drum to make its appearance. 
Possibly he could play the adagio's first timpani part on the other drums, then continue the repair between his first and second entries. It would take almost twenty minutes for the maestro to traverse this longest of adagios. At the worst, he should be ready in time for the finale. But it would be better if he could do it right. So he went to work as fast as he could, given the requirement of utter silence and invisibility. Jurgen, one of the percussionists, noticed his predicament and crawled over to help him. Gunta, he whispered in his ear. What have you done? Never mind that, the timpanist replied. Just help me. They went to it, sitting on the floor and reaching up to the rims of the copper kettle. As they worked, a part of his mind still took in the music. The adagio was one of his favorite parts. People had a tendency to dismiss the ninth adagio a little bit, he had noticed, at least in comparison to the other three movements, each in their different ways so monumental. But that was a mistake. The adagio, too, was a marvel. Indeed, if any one movement of the ninth were to be singled out as being less astonishing than the rest, it would probably have to be the second, much though a timpanist would never say so, of course. Really, It was best just to listen and accept. The whole symphony was great. The adagio was a blessing from God. Furtwängler routinely played it as if pouring stirrup, and on this night he took it slower than ever. The stately melody wound through its series of variations, meandering more each time with a richness of elaboration reminiscent of Bruckner. Simply put, a very beautiful song. It steadied his hand as he untightened the screws, ignoring the anxious face staring up from inside the copper. Then there was a shift, a second theme that interrupted the song, coming as if from far away, trumpets speaking briefly. It might have been a call, a rally to return to town, but it was for others, and the song resumed, carried them downstream and away. Furtwängler's dreamy pace never lost a nice line. They flowed in a way that revealed the deep currents beneath. This was what the maestro was listening for in his own world. It was obvious. All around the timpanist, the strings were following that line. It was a hopeless task to change the drumhead in complete silence, and at one point there was a metallic clank as the loosened hoop hit the edge of a music stand. The maestro's sound technician, Friedrich Schnapp, glared up from his cockpit to the side. He had heard it. Now he saw their situation and grimaced at them fiercely. His gaze darted back and forth between his monitors and them. He looked desperate for a cigarette. He always was, but the Fuhrer didn't like smoking and the maestro neither, so there was no chance of that until the whole thing was over. Schnapp chewed his mustache instead. And Gunther and Jurgen pulled the new head over the drum, then placed the hoop over it, after which they screwed it down in careful half turns, moving around the drum opposite each other. He would have to tune the new head while playing, alas, unless he could risk tapping away sotto voce before his part began. He had done that before, once or twice, when the piece itself called him to do it. The maestro had heard these little additions to the score and tipped his head to the side as if considering whether such a thing was permissible, and then more than once had conducted the transgression, the tip of his baton making little gestures as if to say, If you are going to be so bold, I am not necessarily opposed in theory, but you must be conducted. So he could tune the drum that way on this misbegotten Walpurgisnacht, and the maestro would understand. Or not, in which case he could explain the situation to him later. Despite his focus on their silent handiwork, some inner part of him was also persisting with his rosary. Apparently, this music now triggered it in him no matter what else was happening. So, his mother. How he missed her. How hard she had worked. A baker who had raised her son in her bakery while her husband was out on the road or in the bars. The main impression of her that remained with him was how hard she had worked. Even as a child, he had been impressed by that. Even now, remembering it, awe filled him. No one he had ever known since had worked as hard. Now she had been dead twenty-eight years. Then his father, his crazy father, 
who had been too old even for the first war, and yet nevertheless was now working as a truck mechanic on the Eastern Front. Recently he had been in Berlin on a leave and taken his son out drinking and regaled him with stories of what it was like to be the only mechanic on truck convoys numbering in the scores of his vehicles, with just him and a road engineer named Matthias to keep things moving. Every trip is the fucking Iliad and Odyssey combined, boy. The roads have been destroyed, and we're always axle-deep, and last time out, Matthias wasn't along, and the trucks were sliding into ditches and canals, jackknifing, you name it, and we'd drive up and get out, and they would look at me, and I would look at the mess and think, please, Matthias, speak to me now, be with me now, what would you do with this ridiculous mess? And I swear to you, Gunther, I swear to God, I swear by your mother that Matthias would speak to me. And I would tell everyone what he was saying, tell them to do things I had never seen or heard of. It was Matthias inside me, speaking through me. We would fix the mess, and on we would go. We are all inside each other, boy. We can call mind to mind. You can hear it if you listen. I know, the timpanist had said. It's like that when we play. But he could see that his father believed it literally. It was funny to think that the fate of the entire Russian campaign, in other words, of the war itself, rested on the shoulders of a sixty-year-old mechanic who heard voices in his head. Fort Wengler flowed on. He was indeed taking the adagio slower than usual, no doubt as a rebuke to Gerbos and his gang. You people are here for the fire and glory of the other movements, Fort Wengler's tempo said, but I'm not going to hurry for you. Now you're the captives, caught by Beethoven, and the music that we bathe in is precisely the world that you have taken away from us. This is the meadow in the forest. This is Sunday at dawn in the clean-washed street. This is the flow of slow time, the empty hour, contemplation itself. These are the things you have taken from us with your vicious stupidity. Listen and remember, if you can." if you ever knew. The theme was very like a hymn, and they played it that way, sure. They were praying now, they were singing a devotional, but the devotional that you sing when you are twenty-three and have just been hired as a double bass player in the Berlin Philharmonic is very different from the devotional that you hum in the Untergrund when the Lancasters growl overhead. It was the latter they sang now, both rebuke and consolation, the mix ultimately some kind of deep ache for the world they had lost. It would never come back. Plucked emphases from the basses formed a perfect cover for him to tap the D-drum around the rim and check the tuning. It seemed all right. As a totality, it was perhaps a bit sharp, but it was consistent, and he could pedal it down and all would be well. Now he came to the similar light taps that were actually written in the score— how Beethoven had loved Pulse, no composer before him, and few since had ever thought to use the timpani in this way. Schnapp still glared at them from his cockpit. They definitely had made some noise during their operation, but as there were people in the audience coughing from time to time in helpless little explosions, it did not seem to the timpanist that it could matter much. He focused on his part, the gentle tapping in time with the tune. When else did he ever get to sing like this? It was such a sweet and peaceful thing. But then a light bang, and the end was nigh. Slower than ever, as the coda declared itself, even there he got to tap along, gently, gently. Then the solid thumps at the end. But not the end, another little joke. But then the end. Fourth movement, presto, Ode to Joy. From the first shot of the finale, they were cast immediately back into the violence of the first and second movements. His big copper drums were fully involved in that, simply smashing people back into reality and the war. The brief recollections of the first three movements made their truncated appearances each in turn, but each then mutated back into the war. The conflict swirled, thundered, sucked them all back down. 
All this dark re-announcement of the world was soon to be broken by the sound of the human voice, the hoarse shout of a man. But for the moment, darkness was all. Then the famous theme, the raw material they would be wrestling with for the next half hour, came into the world as a kind of feeling in the stomach, a mere whispering from the bases. The maestro liked this very pianissimo, and as usual, he had arranged for the choir to come onto the stage during the first enunciation, so that the singers' little coughs and the unavoidable creaks of their feet on the risers were almost as loud as the basses, which made schnapp glower, but the maestro liked it that way. The first time, though, he would say, it's supposed to ghost into you. So the Bruno Kittel choir shuffled in, as quietly as they could, and as they did, it took a while, the strings picked up the great tune and carried it and its most basic descant up into consciousness, rising then like a wave to break into the brasses. Now, standing all around and behind the tympanist was a crowd of people, men and women ranked on risers. Easily a hundred women there to his right, in their white blouses and perfect hair, their presence palpable, their scent a mix of shampoo and sweat that smelled to him like bread. Now the whole nation was the band. The quartet of soloists stood up together, down there to Fort Wengler's right. Not these tones, the bass singer bellowed, and they began the immense and unstable mix of vocal and orchestral that would surge thereafter around the stage. Meanings ricocheted out of the strange lyrics. Something better had to exist, they seemed to say, or they would make it out of nothing. This is how he interpreted it, and the phrases often matched that feeling. Then the whole choir jumped in with the bass, saying the same lines, and they were well launched on the tumultuous ride of the great finale. The structure of the movement made for many moments and passages complete in themselves, each section a kind of continent they were to traverse. It was not quite a tone poem, but rather a set of variations so various that they were hardly recognizable as such. Still, the great tune lay inside each one of them, concealed with inversions, reversals, textural changes, tempo changes, every kind of change deployed, every kind of magnificence revealed. Keeping the order and flow between the sections was part of the maestro's job and one aspect of his genius. Among other things, he had taught them that when the quartet of soloists sang, the players had to dampen their sound to make the four audible to the listeners in the hall. He was very insistent on this dynamic modulation, and they had learned to play in a mode that might be called piano furioso, an intense mode which kept the music and the players on fire without overwhelming the soloist's sound. The orchestra was better at this than the Kittel choir, or so it sounded to the timpanist. When choir and soloists were both singing, the soloists could not possibly be heard over their massed ensemble. Maybe it didn't matter. They were all singing the solos in their heads anyway, hearing them the way his dad heard Matthias. Surely there could be no one happier than a timpanist in the midst of this finale. He was asked to bang, thump, grumble, pound, tap, roar. He drove the music, punctuated it, played in it. It was as if Beethoven had been concerned to make him joyful. The so-called Turkish variation, with the tenor solo in it, went off with jaunty gaiety, his fellow percussionists clanging away like drunken ottomans. And the tenor was very fine. Every quartet had its best member, and this time it appeared to be the tenor, one Helge Roswange, whose voice had a friendly and even noble tone. Unfortunately, his solo's final flourish, his leap to the sky, was completely overwhelmed by the choir. One had to hear it like Beethoven had heard it. This led to the solemn chords of the passage in which the choir sang very slowly, over the stars, and so on. That, too, went well. Again, a prayer. The women's voices were an unearthly sound. There was no instrument that could match that sound for sheer beauty. As they moved, as if through rooms in heaven, 
and as each part of the symphony had gone so well, as well as any of them had ever heard it, the stakes were somehow raised, their spirits were raised, they became exhilarated. He could hear very clearly that the choir was as caught up by this as the instrumentalists. Their voices, my Lord, all were caught together in something tremendous, flying up into it, and Fort Wengler was alive to it. He was pulling it together for them to hear and sing. On his face they saw, if they made it beautiful enough, they might leave the planet altogether. Oh, they were culpable, yes, but they had not intended it. Suffering had driven them to it. They had gone mad, but in their madness made this. What if the worst culture made the most beautiful thing? What then? Was it then more complicated than people thought? It would at least be a conundrum forever. People would look at the film and listen to the tapes and hear this music and take pause, see birds in a cage, hear that not everyone had been suborned that some had had to stay and fight from within as best they could, with whatever they had, even if it was just to make a music so beautiful that it would remind people hunched by their radio that there was a better world. Then there came the timpanist's favorite part in the entire symphony, the big fugue, Margd Allegro Energico Sempre Ben Marcato, a braided fugue in which different parts of the choir split first into two parts, then moved on to other melodies while new voices took up the original pair, after which the orchestra also broke into sections and joined either one vocal part or another, while violins and basses also tossed back and forth a rapid obligato, above or below, or both at once. Large groups of people, therefore, were simultaneously belting out tunes entirely distinct and different from the rest. Joy, beautiful divine spark, we are intoxicated with fire as we enter your sanctuary. All men become brothers wherever your gentle wing reposes. Do you have a presentiment of the eternal, O world? Seek it above the starry tent. Over the stars it must dwell. All these phrases overlapping in the same time and space, and yet the weaving lines made something massive and right a polyphony with so many interlocking melodies that the timpanist could not believe that Beethoven, in his deafness, could really have imagined what it would sound like. He must only have seen it as a pattern on the page, a hope in him, a hope now filling the hall, a magnificent chaos that was not chaos. He got to emphasize this on his drums. Out of chaos emerged order. Out of chaos emerged beauty. A beauty so complex it could not be comprehended. This must be the passage, Gunther thought, as he always thought when he was playing it, where Beethoven had gotten confused during the premiere performance. The old man had sat on the stage next to the conductor, trying to help with Tempe, but had lost his place, and the conductor had forged on without him. And when it was all over and the audience clapped and cheered, Beethoven had sat there, still facing the orchestra, his back to the audience, deaf and unaware, perhaps disconsolate at losing his place. And so the soprano, Fräulein Unger, had gone to him and taken his hand and turned him around so he could see the audience, who then began leaping in the air to show him how they felt. This was his country. These were his people, the nation of musicians, sovereign even in chains. Wherever your gentle wing reposes, whoever has become a friend of a friend. He pounded this feeling home at the fugue's end, just as Beethoven required of him. Now their faces were all flushed. Red-faced, bright-eyed, they kept their gaze fixed on the maestro or their sheet music, as if to look around might reveal something unbearable. Intently, the choir whispered the tiptoe section that followed, rocking back and forth, the whispered staccato, Seek it above the starry tent, before the sudden shouts, Brothers! Brothers! Back and forth, whisper, shout, whisper, shout, such fun to do, all winding up for the final run through the ode to joy, when every instrument and voice played the theme in unison for the first time. This a reversal of the fugue from just moments before, all now shouting the one tune together as loudly as they could. Two hundred strong, he had never heard music this loud in his life. The performance just kept on getting better. 
They all heard it. It seized them up and carried them off. The final quartet of the soloists came at last, sign of the approaching end, a curious, gnarled thing to the tympanist's ear, like four lines of wool, all kinked in knots. But with the gorgeous high turn of the soprano at the climax, that downward bend on the word wing, where your gentle wing alights, where grace comes down and touches our soul. The moment the soprano finished her last words, Dein sanfter Flügel weilt, Furtwängler rushed them through the complex coda. He drove them, first very fast, in a real hurry, then the final retard, for the toppling off of the cliff of the voices, the falling fourths and fifths again, at the bottom of which he redoubled the pace to something quite inhuman. Always he did it this way. Go like a bat out of hell, he would say, but never so fast as on this night. Even at his usual tempo, the piccolo player was forced to play with supernatural speed and volume. But on this night, Franz had to simply throw his hat to the wind and squeal like a maniac, and the tympanist had to strike every note of it with him, and he did. Then they stood there, still inside the reverberations of the final chord, still ringing with it. The tympanist listened, quivering, his eyes fixed on Fort Wengler's face. In the silence certain to follow, everything that so horribly portended would come to pass, all that hung over this night like a sword, their ongoing crime, the inevitable judgment, death itself, none of it mattered. They were gone. <laughs> There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Kim Stanley Robinson's. Stan, thank you very much, sir. Diane, what can I say? <laughs> Fantastic. There's some difficult words in there. Diane, thank you very much. Next up is our very own Amy H. Sturgis. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. It's time for another look back into genre history. Today, I would like to take the opportunity to pay tribute to an author who has left us. As I'm sure many of you are already aware, Ray Bradbury died at the age of 91 on June 5th, 2012. Now there are a number of tributes, a number of really moving and excellent obituaries for Ray Bradbury. And as such, I don't want to retread the same ground that everyone else has walked because you probably have already read and heard and seen a number of excellent biographical sketches of this remarkable writer. So I'd like to do something a bit more personal. I'd like to focus our attention on one particular short story by Ray Bradbury, my favorite, which is in itself a look back into genre history. So in that way, I think it's particularly appropriate for this segment. Before I begin, I'd like to just say that Bradbury was one of my gateways. He was one of my first great science fiction authors. I remember reading The Velt when I was in the single digits age-wise, and I still vividly remember that feeling, that feeling that I have come to associate with the reading of science fiction, that feeling that the top of your head has somehow been peeled off and a bright light shone into a part of your brain you didn't even know existed, but will now never be dark again. I should mention that The Velt was originally published as The World the Children Made in the September 23, 1950 issue of the Saturday Evening Post, and then it was later republished in the anthology The Illustrated Man in 1951. It's been adapted many times for television, film, and radio, if you don't remember the Velt, it's about a family that has what's called the Happy Life Home, a home that sports all the latest technology, including a virtual reality-style children's nursery. And their two children, Peter and Wendy, a lovely shout-out to Peter Pan, become fixated on this room and its ability to read their thoughts and redesign itself Per their desires, they are, in essence, raised by the room. 
The parents become concerned with the children's obsession with a particular African veldt scenario where lions can be seen devouring carcasses in the distance, and they take them to a psychologist who says that they should be separated from the room. And in the end, the children lead the parents back for one last visit to the nursery and lock them in. And the parents realize that the carcasses being devoured in the distance are actually their own. Really great, great story. And it helped to plant in me a lifelong love of science fiction literature. What I'd like to do now is talk about my favorite short story by Ray Bradbury. It happens to appear in my favorite work by Ray Bradbury, The Martian Chronicles. The story first appeared as Carnival of Madness in Thrilling Wonder Stories in April 1950. When it came to be part of the Martian Chronicles, it was retitled Usher Two. Like many of Bradbury's works, censorship is the main theme. But in Usher Two, the implication is that the censors particularly targeted. Different kinds of speculative fiction, and found speculative fiction to be an especial threat to their control. The story's protagonist, William Stendhal, is a book lover, one of many apparently who have left Earth and retreated to Mars after the Earth government banned a number of books and hosted the Great Burning. Unfortunately, Mars stays free only for a limited period of time, and the government, in fact, follows from Earth to Mars, bringing with it a group called the Moral Climates, and their enforcers, who are called the Dismantlers and the Burning Crew. You can get a certain flavor of what would become Fahrenheit 451 there. And of course, Fahrenheit 451's big question is: Do you ever read the books you burn? And that question is offered here in Usher Two in an incredibly powerful and I would say beautiful way, because William Stendhal is a fan, in particular, of speculative fiction, and in particular, like yours truly, a fan of Edgar Allan Poe. And so, what he does when he goes to Mars is build what he sees as the ideal replication of the House of Usher from Edgar Allan Poe's *The Fall of the House of Usher*. This place he builds, Usher Two, really spooky place. He uses creepy music. He builds mechanical creatures. He uses poison to kill everything around, so it's this wasteland, and he builds it as a tribute to Poe's work, but also as a trap for those moral climates monitors who come to track him down. He teams up with a gentleman named Pikes, who loves. Early films,、uh, particularly early horror films, and who was in fact himself an actor. His collection of films was confiscated, and the government basically banned him from performing. Even we are told in the story for himself in front of a mirror, and so he takes the same fury that Stindel has. And helps create Usher Two as well, not just a trap, as a death trap. But there is an out for those censors who come after the two of them, if in fact they had ever read the works they banned, they would know what was going to happen and avoid their fate. But of course, they don't. And the House of Usher reenacts a number of different scenes from and scenarios from classic speculative fiction, particularly classic horror, particularly the works of Edgar Allan Poe,、uh, culminating in a moment when the inspector becomes a victim in a reenactment of Poe's Cask of Amontillado. 
as Stindle bricks the inspector into his living death, he says, Do you know why I've done this to you? Because you burned Mr. Poe's books without really reading them. You took other people's advice that they needed burning. Otherwise, you'd have realized what I was going to do to you when we came down here a moment ago. Ignorance is fatal, Mr. Garrett. The story ends with Usher self-destructing in the same way that the original House of Usher fell. There are a number of reasons why I love this story. It is the great revenge tale of the book nerd against those who pass judgment on literature without ever reading it. And, of course, it's all the more potent because it is genre literature. He talks about how in The Great Burning, the imaginative work was the work that was considered most threatening. And he talks about all of the characters who were essentially lined up and, and executed, from um, St. Nicholas to the Headless Horseman, Snow White to Rumpelstiltskin, Mother Goose. He makes all kinds of references to classic fairy tales and fantasy literature, the Wizard of Oz stories, the Alice in Wonderland stories. I think it's quite poignant and quite accurate that he points out that it's the speculative fiction works that the controllers, the ones who, who wanted to be you know, the fascist leaders, found uh, incompatible with their own rule. And so he talks about uh, the fact that it was Poe and Lovecraft and Hawthorne and Ambrose Bierce and all the tales of terror and fantasy and horror and, for that matter, tales of the future that were banned and burned. Because, presumably, these are the ones that sparked the imagination and made the human mind unable to accept tyranny. And in this sense, it is particularly satisfying to me that he focuses on Poe, the description of the house itself and the various traps that are laid for the unwary censors are, in fact, uh, little love notes to different works that, that Poe wrote. And Poe really does embody this sort of one-stop shopping of speculative fiction, being, as he was, a pioneer in horror, the father of the modern detective story, one of the fathers of science fiction, etc. And looking back on how many times I've read this story and how many times I've, I've taught it and, and, and recommended it to others and appreciated Bradbury's tribute to Poe, it occurs to me that the same could be said of Bradbury himself. He wasn't constrained by genre. He wrote imaginatively in everything that he did, and he was because of, by virtue of the way he used his imagination, an enemy to close-mindedness and ignorance and intellectual tyranny. As he sums up so beautifully in Usher 2, in three words, ignorance is fatal. It seems to me then to be the perfect place to go if you're looking for a read that celebrates Bradbury at his best, Bradbury's love of the traditions of literature in which he himself was writing, and his own tribute to the greats who came before him and paved the way for his own work. And like much of his work, it remains relevant today. I'll end with one of the great quotes. They began by controlling books of cartoons and then detective books and, of course, films one way or another, one group or another, political bias, religious prejudice, union pressures. There was always a minority afraid of something and a great majority Afraid of the dark, afraid of the future, afraid of the past, afraid of the present, afraid of themselves, and shadows of themselves. For this and so many other important words, thank you, Mr. Bradbury. I look forward to joining you again soon for another look back into genre history. <laughs> And that is it. That is show 249 put in the bag. I hope you've enjoyed it. Don't forget, 
Lots to see and do now on the Starship Sofa. We have the dreams. We have District of Wonders Network there going strong. If you want a little bit of crime takes your fancy this week, Crime City Central or High Adventure with Protecting Project Pulled by Deep Down Dirty with Larry and Tales to Terrify. Do hope you'll kind of, you know, have a look and look over those shows as well. Thank you so much. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honour and artistic judgement? Tune in next week for the next exciting instalment of Starship Sofa. A badly recent procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.